Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Wow, what a way to generate a conversation around pay difference and inequity. Or not. Just got really quiet in the room. Everybody's going like, what was that video? Like, do we have to, do we have to actually talk about this stuff? So, men, just imagine right after church today you go for lunch. Anybody? Okay, you go for lunch. And you go out, you go to the restaurant, you go with your friends, you go with your family, you get the bill, they slide it across, and you are assessed a 26% surcharge for your meal because you're a man. How would you feel? Smart. You did not respond in the room. Ladies, you go get the same bill, but you get a 26% discount. How would you feel? I think there's an equity in response in the room this morning. We know that inequity exists in our world. We recognize that. And so this actual video just raises a little bit of a topic that we all see, we sense, we face it. And why are we even talking about it? Well, welcome to Portico. Great to have you here. Great to have those of you joining us online. Get your notes out because what we're dealing with is a series called Under Pressure. And we're looking at one of life's major pressure points and it's called inequity. And it's everywhere. It is not constrained by geography, by age, by social, by gender, by cultural identities. Inequity permeates so many stratas of our society that often we either feel its impact, we're oppressed by its impact, or we don't even want to talk about its impact, but it's there. And the Bible not only identifies the pressure point of inequity... But this is going to be paramount for us, what we do today. The Bible calls any endorsement or covert attachment to these expressions as out of bounds. They are just out of bounds for us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're becoming a disciple of Jesus, the Bible's very, very clear about this, that it should be intolerable for us to engage and participate in expressions of inequity. Would you agree? Interactive church, we can, you can actually speak to me and we're going to be okay today, all right? So we know, all right, thank you, right over there. We got one on the line and the rest are ready to go. So we're going to jump right in because what the Bible does is it tackles this issue head on. And James, we're in the book of James, you can turn over there. James, as no other author does, he dives right in and he goes right in towards this issue and he squares up with it and he talks to the followers of Jesus and he goes, listen. When you're faced with inequity and when you're pressured by inequity, here's how you need to handle your life. So get out your Bibles, James chapter 1, keep them open today because we're going to go through and there's some great lessons for us. And we're dropping down to verse 9. Here it is. James writes these words, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, and in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now we're going to stop there, because here's the question. What does the Bible have to say about inequity 
And more importantly, what does that have to do with you and what does that have to do with me? So here's what we want to do. I want to lift two principles out of this text that are overarching principles that help guide our lives. And I want you to write them down. I want you to get your notes out, write them down. And in your growth groups, I think you're going to have a fantastic conversation this week because that's a place you can, like, gloves off, everybody in, and let's talk about this. And what does inequity look like? How do we deal with it? And what does it mean for me? If you're taking notes, number one, write this down. Inequities are an inevitable reality in life. The Bible does not avoid the issue. That's what I love about the Bible. It's so in our face on these issues and these topics that it doesn't bury it underneath and just hide it in the shadows. It brings it out into the forefront to go, listen, part of humanity's challenge is the way we treat each other. And so we treat each other, whether it's racially, gender-wise, socially, culturally. We recognize that what sin has done has caused us to respond inappropriately at so many different levels that inequity exists And we need to identify it. And so it's an inevitable part of life. Did you know that your government actually is so committed to helping you recognize that inequity exists that every year they send you a notification about it? Did you know that? It comes out in the first quarter of the year. They produce this little list. It's called the sunshine list. Anybody know what I'm talking about now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now everybody, oh, I've read that list. My name's still not there. I know, you look every year to see if you made it. So what is the Sunshine List? Maybe you're new or you're watching online this morning. Back in 1996, the government, in the spirit of full transparency, said, we want you to know the public sector salaries of the employees who are making $100,000 a year or more. So it makes good reading for the rest of us. So we thought, yeah, let's get in on this. So back, here's what's interesting. Back in 1996, there were 4,576 names. So 4,500, 4,600 names were on the list. In 2017, in the last update, just released this past quarter, there were 131,741 names on the list. Why do I share that with you? Because... We love to read the list and rant about the fact that we're not making the same amount of money as people on the list are. So that becomes the inequity challenge because we go, how come those people make that kind of money? There's another group of people that rant about the list and they're on it. But they're not in the top 10 income earners. They're in the bottom 120,000 income earners. And they go, how come the people at the top 10? Do you ever notice we never make enough? right? No matter how much we make, we never make enough. And so inequity, now we're going to touch on finance, but I do want to stress that inequity is much broader than simply finance. In fact, there's gender inequity, pay, promotion, opportunity, and access. There's racial inequity. There's power inequity. What's power inequity? Supervisors to employees, companies and unions, provinces against federal leadership, industrialized nations against developing nations, Children and parents, great inequity, wouldn't you agree? That was all the kids, not the parents. Inequity exists at every strata of our life. And so the Bible reminds us that these are an inevitable reality in our life. And James didn't mince any words about it, but he does teach us something. So look back in your notes, James chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, believers who are in humble circumstances, how many would be you're in a humble circumstance? Wow, you guys are tough today. You woke up and saw the snow and you went, that's it. I'm shutting down. Like, winter's back in Ontario. 
Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride, and James calls it a what? High position. So James recognizes what we often don't want to speak out. He goes, some of you are in pretty tough situations based upon your perspective. You're in a pretty challenging situation. And he goes, and if you find yourself there, he goes, just be reminded that you're actually in a pretty good place. And you're going, Doug, what does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that and I'll unpack it a little bit more. Now, culturally, James is identifying something that's taking place here. He's speaking to the community of followers of Christ when they would gather together for their corporate gatherings. And he goes, you know what's happening in the church? And over the next couple of chapters in James, he calls it out. He goes, but, but people are coming in. And when people are coming into the service, some of you are deferring to the wealthy people, the rich people, and you're actually showing them greater honor than those who are of common status to you. Whoa. So James goes, this is wrong. You can't do this. And he's, he's actually going to get deep, deep into this. There's something I've discovered as a pastor that never happens in our churches here. No, 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 it doesn't. No, you know why? Because often the front row is never filled. See, the wealthy people in those churches were being invited down to the very front. Now, you people must be my wealthy crew. Look at that. You didn't know that, did you? So get, get your phones out. Take pictures of these people right here. They're the wealthy ones right here. What was happening for James, he said, people are coming to the church and everybody's like, whoa, nice to have you here. See, there's something we get enamored with other people's wealth as an opportunity to leverage for our advantage. And James goes, don't do that. And he goes, and you allow that to happen in the church? He goes, that's what it is to be a follower of Christ. In fact, you're promoting inequity. He said, you should be content. You should understand that in your humble circumstances, this is going to be a part of culture. It's not necessarily right. He's going to deal with it. He goes, but don't try to leverage it for your benefit. In fact, we'll spend time exploring how James speaks to us very candidly from the Word of God about how do we live our lives. And so he goes, this is what was happening in their situation. If you look into the early first century, we know that in the church there was disparity. Some had lots, some had not so much. There were the haves and the have-nots. And he goes, and when you recognize that, you got to be careful that you don't become competitive and comparative in this. And so he points out something that nobody wanted to talk about. In fact, even in the early followers of Jesus, there were haves and have-nots. There was a, a man by the name of Levi who would later become known as, anybody know his name? Matthew. So he became a disciple of Jesus. What was he? His trade, his profession? Tax collector. He was one under the purview of Rome that Rome said, as long as you give us our quota, you can literally extort as much money as you want. We'll look the other way. Tax collectors were incredibly wealthy. That's why when Jesus went through Jericho and he, said, he saw Zacchaeus, he said, Lord, I'll give immediately half to the poor. Where did that come from? And he said, anybody I've cheated, I'll repay four times what I took away. They were making enormous amounts of money. Fascinating that Jesus would choose a tax collector to be a part of his group. You know what that spoke to me about? I think there were some very interesting conversations in the group of 12 that we never got recorded. I think James and John and Andrew and Simon, when they paid their taxes for fishing, and Matthew was sitting at the booth collecting the taxes, I'll bet they had some thoughts about Matthew, didn't they? Do you not think so? I know so because you just paid your taxes and you had some thoughts about the government, right? So sometimes Matthew can't even get away from his past because he remembers who he was. 
And people won't let you get away from your past because they remember who you were. But in Christ, he said, you have a brand new future. And that's why James starts talking about, hey, when it comes to this whole area of inequity, if you're in humble circumstances, then just remember how high you really are. And if you're in exalted circumstances or you're wealthy, he said, then just remember, that's a very tenuous situation to live in. And let's make sure we get it rightly into balance. Jesus was very, very keen on this topic. In fact, he acknowledged the existence of inequity. If you're taking notes, just write down Matthew 26, 11. He was sensitive to the plight of the poor. He said this, the poor you will always have with you. So Jesus called it out. He said, I, I realize there's disparity. It's not fair. He said, the poor you're going to have with you. Now, he'll challenge us to do something about that, but he called out societal's issues. He was also attuned to the growing disparity between the rich and the poor. In fact, in Luke twenty-two twenty-five, we put it in your notes, he made this statement. He said, in the world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, and yet they're called friends of the people. So Jesus makes a statement, and he's speaking. There's a little bit of sarcasm here. He said, in the world, you've got your kings and your leaders, and they lord it over you, and yet they want to be called the friends of the people. He was speaking about Herod. Herod wanted to be known as the the friend of the people. And he goes, these are the people that are imposing taxation and control and restriction on you, and they're causing this gap, and yet they want to be called your friend. So Jesus was attuned to this. Now, what about Jesus and the issue of inequity? This is critical, because a lot of people look at Scripture and they go, how does the Bible deal with this? So Jesus elevated the status of women. In a patriarchal society, what did he do? He surrounded himself with men and with women. And you'll read it over and over in the Gospels that often it was women. Who was there first when it came to the cross? The women. Who was there at the resurrection? It was the women. Jesus elevates the status of women and he goes, listen, they are equal in my sight. And so I love how he takes and he just brings the gospel of grace into culture and he challenged it. There's a story, and if you're writing notes, there's a story in John chapter 4. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and if you're new to the Bible, I'll quickly explain. The rest of you, you're going to know the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's going to go back up north to Capernaum in the Galilee, and he's going home. And he decides to take a shortcut and go through Samaria. And you go, so what's the big deal? He's going through Samaria. Well, in Samaria... We know historically that that group where the Jewish people had resided, when they had been exiled out, the conquering nations would transplant groups of people back into that region and they would intermarry and mix. So devout Jews considered Samaritans to be impure, half-breeds. They weren't really pure Jews. So they would bypass, they'd go through Jericho and they'd go all the way up through the Jordan River Valley to get to Capernaum. They'd never go through Samaria. And Jesus intentionally went there, and and John writes about it in John chapter 4. And while he's making the shortcut, he gets thirsty. He sits down in the middle of the day by a well called Jacob's Well, and he sees a woman coming, and he asks her for a drink of water. The disciples had gone off to get some food. So Jesus gets into a conversation with her, asks her for some water, promises her living water, and they have this amazing discussion. And when the disciples come back and they see the scene, they are, and the Bible says the word, shocked, shocked. They're horrified by what they see. Jesus has elevated the status of this woman to an equal, and he's engaged in a conversation with her. And knowing her background, who she would be to be out at that time of the day, they had some significant questions about what Jesus was up to, that he's speaking to a Samaritan 
raises more issues. So all of this is just blended all together, and they're shocked at what Jesus is doing. And I love the fact that the Bible shows us that even though inequity is an inevitable part of our life, that Jesus steps into inequity, and he brings justice and compassion, and he restores where bias has been rampant. That's the call of the gospel. So you look at us, and you go, well, if inequities are there, and all these different forms, then what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live and respond to these situations? So go to your Bible, look at James chapter 1 again, and I'm going to go to verse 9. Let's read it once more. So James said, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. You go, what is James telling us in this text here and as the rest of the letter rolls out. In your notes, number two, write this down. God will balance out all of life's inequities. God's going to balance out all of the disparity, all of the intolerances, all of the inequity and bias that we see in our world. God's going to deal with this. The Bible clearly informs us that there's a day of reckoning coming where disparity, injustice, partiality, favoritism will all get balanced. So if we find ourselves in the midst of hardships, and some of us do, and we find ourselves, whether it's in our employment situation, our income levels, whether it's in our racial situation, no matter where we are, if we find ourselves in a system of injustice and we go, God, where are you in the middle of it? The Bible says, and James reminds us, that God's going to equal this all out. In fact, it reminds me of, do you remember when the Israelites were back in the hardship of Egypt and God raised up Moses? And God said to Moses, listen, I've seen what's going on with my people. So he used a couple of statements. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and I have come down to rescue them. And friends, it's no different in our story. God sees the injustice. He's concerned about it. He has moved about it, and he has come down through Christ to rescue us, and he will rescue us from this. So in the interim, what do we do? Well, I was looking at the paraphrase of James chapter 1, verse 9, and I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrased it, because he reminds us that when God is balancing these things all out, there are some responses that we should have. And he put it into a, a, just kind of a street vernacular that we could understand. So this is the message paraphrase. I'm going to put it on screen here. So here's what he wrote. He said, when the down and outers get a break, what do you do? How many of you are down and outers? Okay, because I'm going to ask if you're the wealthy in a minute. So just in case. Anybody want to change your vote? How many of you are down and outers? Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Okay. Have you been cheering for the Leafs? That's over now. Yeah, go for the Raptors now. All right, so we're past the Leafs, we're on to the Raptors. James says if you're in a situation where there's difficulty in your life, you find yourself, have you ever thought, oh man, I just wish my life was better? Anybody now? I just wish my circumstances would change. I just wish God would maybe do this for me in my life. I wish I had a better home. I had this, this, this. We run it all through. He said, when you're down and out, what are you supposed to do? Exactly. Can you cheer? Okay, on the, on the count of three. One, two, three. I did not hear anything from that back corner over there. I'm just telling you. All right, try it again. One, two, three. There you go. That means when you're going through difficult times in your life, he says, cheer about it. He's actually going to tell us, endure through the challenge. 
Why can we cheer? See, we mope around. We get all depressed. We go, oh, we bring everybody else down with us. And James goes, no, 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 no. That's because you haven't got this all in perspective. God's going to balance out everything. So when you face a hardship, this is pretty radical. When you face a hardship, he goes, cheer. So when you paid your taxes, changes everything, doesn't it? Cheer about it. And just go, Justin, have a great vacation on me and send it in. And just have a great time with it. We love to lament and complain, but James brings us back and he says, hey, get your focus. Now watch this. He turns it around and Eugene does it this way. He said, when the arrogant rich are brought down to size, what does it say? Yeah, we love this one, don't we? We all jump in when the kings fall. We go, oh, finally, now some justice is happening in the world. I, I love how James balances it out. He goes, listen, when you're bemoaning your situation and complaining about it, he says, cheer about it, because God's going to do something, and he's going to balance out. And when the rich are brought down to size, he goes, yeah, we feel better. Cheer about it. Just, you know, be careful. Don't make it too loud. Just like, woo He said, there's a balancing that's taking place. And what is this all picturing in the future? He says, God sees. He is concerned. He has come down, and he's rescuing us in this story. That's why Christ came. So as, respond, as followers of Christ... I got thinking about, so what do I do? What do you do? How do we apply this? Because if it's not practical, I can't just walk around this world cheering every time I see an injustice and somebody comes down, I go, woohoo, and they go, lock him up. So how do I practically apply this to my life in inequity issues that I face? So in your notes, I got three blanks in there that I want you to fill out. And if you're online, you can do it through the app as well. These are what I consider to be sort of the irreducible biblical principles that we should be centering our lives around. Keep them in mind. Orient your lives around these principles. Here's the first one. The first principle is this principle of what I call raising and lowering. That the Bible is very clear, and James talks about this, that if we will humble ourselves, God will what? Exalt us in due time. And if we walk in our pride, God will humble us. So the principle of life is that we don't strive to self-elevation, but rather we make sure that we walk in pure humility, not false humility, but we walk in humility. Proverbs 10 and 3, it says, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. There's a promise. And he says, and he thwarts the craving of the wicked, that God sees when injustice is in play. And he goes, I understand that. But if you understand that I have supreme control, and he goes, and in the grand scheme, I'm going to balance out everything that concerns you. So James was really, really aware, because we're going to read about this. He was aware that sometimes it's easy for us to claim positions of humility when in fact we're not all that humble. Has that ever happened to you? It's easy to walk and to project humility, but we're not always that humble. And James points it out in the church there with these followers of Jesus. And he starts to talk about the way they treated one another and acting towards the rich. And he goes, that's not humility. You're leveraging that for your own advantage. In fact, some of the language he was using, it's interesting. He, he was talking about these positions that they were achieving. Uh, remember the laurel wreath? It was what they gave in the competition to the winners. And so people would win that in their competition. 
And he goes, it's the, their image they would understand is it would be a person who won that during the competition would continue to wear that weeks and months and years later because they want people to see, I'm, I'm the winner. I, I did this. So it'd be like when you, you know, you little league and hockey and baseball, you get your trophies and you line all your trophies up or you get your little ribbons and you hang them around. Can you imagine if you still wore your high school track meet ribbons today? And you're walking around and you go, I got this one for a long jump. I wouldn't even attempt long jump at my age right now. But James goes, we do that. We want people to see the accolades we've achieved in life. And he goes, don't do that. He says, you're exalting yourself, but rather in here, understand this principle of raising and lowering. Keep everything in balance and aware. Number two, if you're writing down these principles, remember this, the second principle, life is short. Life is short. The awareness that our life in the grand equation of eternity, the years of our mortal existence are relatively insignificant. Now, I did not say your life is insignificant. I said the years of your mortal life are insignificant. Look at Psalm 90 verse 10. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 years if our strength endures. How many of you are over 80? You should cheer right now. Because the Bible says, hey, if we get 70 or 80 years, we're doing pretty good. I heard a, I heard a couple of little cheers out there, so way to go, woof, woof. But uh, if we get more than that, health care has enabled us to actually live longer. Why does the Bible remind us of this? Because we become so temporal focused, we become so focused on the years of life that I have right now that we forget to project into eternity, and then we measure everything, and we measure our inequity based upon how many years I live in this life. Does that make sense? So I get upset because if I'm 30 or 40 or 50, how is that going to get reconciled in the next 20 years of my life? He goes, no, no, no. Just remember, your, your life is very short in perspective of God's greater scheme. That God's plan is for you to live as an eternal being. You're created eternal. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die for us. That's why your life is not insignificant. That he would send his son to pay for your sin, to die on your behalf, so that you could have purpose in life and that you wouldn't become burdened down by the inequities that we experience, but you get your eyes focused on your future and understand that God's going to balance everything out. That if I walk in true humility before the Lord and I keep my mind on this perspective that I have so many years to invest and I can invest my life as a champion for the cause of justice, that I can raise these issues up and I can speak truth and grace on behalf of God into stories, that my life isn't meaningless. It becomes very, very meaningful. Third principle, and I want you to write it down in your notes. It's this principle of living according to the kingdom that is coming. Live according to the principle of the kingdom that is coming. That we're to center our life around. Jesus continually spoke about that the kingdom has come and is yet to come. So it's here now because of his grace. And in its fullness, it is yet to come. So he said, your life, and James reminds us that our life should be all oriented around this future kingdom that is coming. That's why he says, make sure that you store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? Where, rot, where rust and moth can't destroy and eat it away. He goes, don't flit away the years of your life pursuing things that don't matter. They were so caught up in comparative analysis of who had more and who had less. And what are we going to do about it? And James is going, remember this, that life is short. And if you live according to the kingdom that is coming and understand that God's going to balance everything out, live to please God and use the gifts of your life to make a difference for all eternity. Kevin and Joan Salwin, 
live in Georgia, down in Atlanta, Georgia. A number of years ago, they were driving, and when they came up to a red light, they stopped the car, and their 14-year-old daughter, Hannah, was seated in the back seat. And she was out in the back seat, she was looking out the windows, and she looked out the left side of the car, and there on the left side of the car, she saw a beautiful two-door black Mercedes coupe. Gorgeous car. And she thought, wow, that's a really nice car. Then she looked out the right-hand side of the car and looked out the window, and there at the street corner was a homeless man with a tattered piece of cardboard begging for spare change so that he could buy a meal. Fourteen years of age, and she was caught in this disparity and inequity. And in that moment, she looked at her dad and she said, Dad, if the guy with the nice car sold his car and bought maybe just a less nice car, wouldn't there be enough money then to buy the man who doesn't have any money for food, a meal? And Kevin said, yes, Hannah, that could happen. They pulled away from the light and Hannah was clearly distressed by what she's seen. And she kept, Dad, we need to do something about this. And so Hannah's mom jumped in and she said, Hannah, what do you want us to do? Only a 14-year-old, if you've raised kids, you know where this is going. Only a 14-year-old could pull this one off. She said, I think we should sell our house. (laughs) Wouldn't you love to be driving the car at that moment in time? That actually, that comment initiated a conversation between Kevin and Joan and their two children. He said, you know, we have a nice home. It's more than we need. It's bigger than we need. He said, what if we did this? The four of them got together. They invited the children into the conversation. They sold their home and bought a home for half the value. They took the money that they realized from the sale, and then together they investigated which nonprofit charitable agency could handle the funds appropriately to help with the issue of poverty in our world. And they gave the money away. That prompted them to then write a book, and it's called The Power of Half. Kevin says, you know, our family has never been more engaged, more connected than we are today. We have better conversations, we have more meaningful conversations, because everything we're doing is about making somebody's life better. And it all became a possibility because their 14-year-old daughter spoke. Now, he's quick to add. He said, are we advocating that everybody needs to sell their house? He says, no, not at all. He said, but what we do believe is that people can make a difference if they chose to live differently. Hannah, 14 years of age, brilliant insight. Hannah, when asked about the whole project, admitted that not everybody could do what they did when they sold their house, but then she said, but some people could do with half of the lattes that they order. Some could do with half of the clothes they buy. Some could do with half of the electronics they purchase. She goes, everybody has the power to give half to make a difference for someone else. Isn't that incredible? The power of half. See, if we live today in light of the kingdom that is now here and is coming in its fullness, it will reorient our perspective of what injustice really looks like in inequity. It helps us remind ourselves that we have an opportunity to do something great because here's what I'm fully convinced of, that we all have been born into privilege. We all have been given an incredible status, and it is maybe not wealth and position and power. And for most of us, I think our parents were probably extremely hardworking and sacrificial people who gave their best to get us to where we are. And you might challenge me to say, how could you say that I've been born into privilege and status? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, 
Listen to what he writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living hope. He said, you've been now born into a new ancestral family. And your dad is the wealthiest man in this world. He has all the resources, and he will balance all inequity out. And Peter says, if you understood and began to live in light of this kingdom, just maybe we would all embrace the power of half because we could make a difference for others. It's because of God's great mercy that's been poured out on us so freely that when we do face inequities, and we will, that we can be the ones who will be the champion for the need for justice, equality, and fairness. That because of what God has done for us, we can be the ones who will love others unconditionally. That because of God, we can be the ones to release life and love into the power of one other. Jesus never promised it would be easy, but he definitely promised us it'll be totally worth it. So if we understood this, the power of what God has given us and the opportunity to adjust and address inequity, all of us could make a difference for the sake of even just one. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we realize that what Christ has done for us is so far greater than often we can even comprehend. That we all have capacity to address inequity, injustice, bias, disparity, whatever name we want, whatever label we want to use. We have the power. And we can be your conduits of hope and grace and life and light, and we can make a difference in a world all around us. So I pray. Father, that you would allow us to be filled with kindness and compassion for the one. That we would love the one whom you loved, the one for whom you sent your son so that they might have life too. This past week, I had an opportunity. I was in some meetings and a gentleman approached me and he had visited our church. And he said, Doug, I just want to tell you, he said, I never had a chance to connect to you. I just want to tell you how amazing your church is. From the parking lot, through the foyer, right into the worship center, he goes, I felt so welcomed and loved and accepted. He said, it just drew me in to the church community. And I go, I know we have an amazing church family. Like, they really are, you are the best. It's incredible. And so as we were talking about this, you know, there's a little bit of that I was proud of you, but then I had to humble myself because, you know, James, I was going to preach a message. But he said, I just want you to know that I visited so many churches. And he goes, and whenever I get a chance, I visit a church. And he said, I visited yours. And you need to know this. And he said, I just wanted to share that with you. And as he told me that, I was so proud of you in the right way of all of us together. Because in your smile and in your eyes and in a handshake, you never know how you're bridging inequity and injustice in another person's life. And so as we chatted, he goes, I wish I could come to your church, he said, but I can't. And the reason he can't is because he's a pastor. He has to go back to his own church. <laughs> I thought that was great. I said, hi, see you on Sunday. No, 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 you can't watch this online. But imagine if we together 
listened to God's word, and this week, we didn't just keep that experience in the room, but we actually, when we leave and go out this week, today, tomorrow, all the way through the week, through a smile, through a handshake, through an expression, we allow God's grace to enable us to become champions for justice, love, and righteousness. So may we be the ones that love the one. Amen? Father, this morning, thank you for the amazing gift of time together, to be in community with one another, to worship, sing, express love towards one another, hear your truth, and now to apply it. Holy Spirit, keep it close to our hearts, ready at our hands, and right on our lips, that others might grow in the love and grace of Christ as well. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.